So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, as we look at the most famous Bible, famous story in the Bible uh, of all of history. And then, Bridge Kids, you can go while they're turning. I just saved you 10 seconds right there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start by reading the passage, so I want to invite you to have your smart device ready to go. Luke chapter 10. We're going to start uh, in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same way, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In a classic research experiment at Princeton University in 1973, I'm actually older than the experiment, it is a bit dated, but it is a classic one. Princeton University, theology students were divided into three groups. Half of those were assigned to give a talk on religious education and vocation. You know how this spiritual thing fits in with a life calling. The other half were assigned to give a talk on the Good Samaritan. After that, these two groups were divided into three groups who had a different a sense of urgency in getting to the place. So they're at Princeton University. They're in a room. They're in a building on one side of the university. They're assigned now to give a talk on the other side of the university, and they're now in three groups. The first group is told, um, you're late. you got to get there. Second group is told, you're right on time, don't dawdle. I don't think they use the word dawdle. And the third group said, we're told, um, 
You've got plenty of time. And so these three groups were then sent uh, to give their talk. Now, the researchers, uh, Darley and Batson, had hired an actor to be right on their path that every student must encounter on their way to give their talk. This actor was sort of like kind of passed out, lying on the ground in an alleyway, but yet right where students would travel. And uh, this actor, you know, coughed and sounded desperate and, you know, like he, he really needed help. Um, some of the students stopped because they, they went in three different groups. The interesting thing was 90% of the students who were told they were late and were also preaching on the Good Samaritan totally ignored this guy. In fact, several in this group actually stepped over him without stopping to address any of his needs. You know, that's pretty amazing, but I'm glad that in, when I was in the seminary, they didn't do that one on me. Um, these guys were late, they were in a hurry, and they could not stop. Kind of sounds like our culture today, doesn't it, on our, how busy we can be. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think you would have stopped? You know, some of you, compassion is really easy. Some of you are very practical. Some of you are extremely busy. Um, some, some of you always operate late. What would you have done? And so today we're going to look at this parable of the Good Samaritan. And it may be the best known in all the Bible of all, all the stories. And verses 25 through 37, we're actually going to look at two two passages, but this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here we see the problem of discrimination. And uh, Jesus has given two test questions in this story. And here's the first test question we see in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So we learned several things uh, right there. Uh, this is an expert in the law. He's a lawyer. His law is the religious law or the law of Israel. His law is the Old Testament law written in the Bible, and there are 613 commands. So it did require people to study this and know this and how to in bring interpretation and application. This is important. So he's an expert in the law, highly trained, highly viewed in his culture. But look at his heart. He's not honestly pursuing more information or something about Jesus, or what can I learn about the kingdom of God? He's coming to test Jesus, perhaps to make Jesus look foolish, uh, to perhaps to show Jesus who really knows the scriptures better. Uh, so he asked this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This was a common question in the first century. Uh, it was like the, the, one of the classic legal cases or classic, okay, we have to explain to people what the Old Testament says about how you get eternal life. And so they actually spent a whole lot of time uh, talking about how people should inherit eternal life. Um, and he thinks, this uh, expert in the law thinks he already knows 
the answer? He wants to see if Jesus is as smart as he is. There are some key assumptions here. The first is, what must I do? That's how he comes at this. What must I do? Because the common perception of the day in the first century is the way you get to heaven is you do good works. You got to do lots of good stuff for God. That's how you get accepted. You got you to do good works and get on the good side of God. The idea of eternal life, um, we just take for granted sometimes, but the idea is to, to be with God forever, um, to be in his kingdom, to be in heaven, to have a relationship with him beyond our own uh, physical death. Um, and You know, this uh, isn't so much unlike what people think today as far as we got to sort of do good, be good, and hope we get to heaven. And um, so here's it. Do you know the answer to this question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, the answer we find in verses 26 and 27 isn't super easy to understand, but here's how Jesus does it. You ask Jesus a question, he's going to ask you a question. So what's the answer? The answer is, I'm going to ask you a question, and you give the answer, okay? And you give the answer, and you'll have the answer to your question. What is written in the law, he replied. So Jesus refers this law expert back to the law, back to the Old Testament, back to the scriptures. You know, there, there were laws in Exodus, and there was a ton of laws in Leviticus, and there's some laws in Numbers, and there's some laws in Deuteronomy, and so Jesus refers him back to the text. Uh, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? What is your interpretation of it? And so the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is Deuteronomy 6.5. And with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a good answer. He hit it out of the park with this answer. And by the way, you may know that this subject comes up in another place. Mark records it, Matthew records it, when Jesus is tested by an expert in the law, and Jesus gives this answer. It's a different situation. It's later in ministry, and it's uh, the whole different thing. This is the only time the parable of the Good Samaritan is recorded in Scripture in the Gospel of Luke, and this is all related to this question. And... Um, so that's a, the Matthew 22 is a totally different occasion. But this is interesting. Love the Lord your God. You know what? Love is about a relationship. It's not sterile. It's not intellectual. It's about a relationship. And it's personal. Your God, your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. It's a personal relationship with God. And then that second one, love, your, that's about a relationship. Love your neighbor as yourself. You like yourself? Take care of yourself? You have a proper view of self. Well, treat your neighbor as you would like people to treat you. And um, so think about this. 
Is this how you inherit eternal life? Jesus gives an affirmation in verse 28. He affirms this man's insight. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's it. Just do this perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. Always. Never put anything before God. Never, ever. From the time you're small to the time you go to the grave. Always do what God says. Never take his name in vain. Never um, violate the Sabbath day. Never do anything that dishonors God. And you, you got it. Also, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what all those other commandments are about because all the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. And by the way, all the New Testament hinges on those two as well. If you can love your neighbor perfectly, every time, every way, honoring your parents, never having immoral thoughts or practices, never lying, never stealing, and never coveting anything that's not yours. And so if you can do that perfectly, you got it. And Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the requirement. So if you can do this, you got it. But Jesus knew nobody could do that. We know nobody could do that. And the expert in the law should have known that as well. That's why there's so much provision in the Old Testament to try to cover sin. So many sacrifices. And God was showing his people they needed more. They needed him to live their lives. They weren't going to be able to do it on their own. Um, Jesus had another occasion, and I think we have it in John 6, 28 and 29. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Okay, you want to do God's works? You want to do what he requires? He says, the work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. That's John 3, 16. To believe in the one that God sent, his one and only son. Believe in him and you will have eternal life. Um, that's, that's where everything starts with God, is beginning that relationship with God by putting one's faith in Jesus because we've all sinned that's what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Romans 3.23. Our sin separates us from God. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that in Romans 6.23. And God sent his son to be a sacrifice for us and to take our place because we don't deserve eternal life or heaven. Jesus paid our price so that we could have a relationship with him. So we could live for him and he could live through us. Okay, second test question, verses 29 through 37. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, this expert in the law who is now given the right answers, and he sort of senses that Jesus is not impressed, and so he, just, he wants uh, to explain himself more, and he wants to find out more about, like, does Jesus really understand? And... So he says, and who is my neighbor? That's his big question. Who is my neighbor? 
Now, first century rabbis had come to the conclusion after much debate, and they, they debated this all the time, that basically a neighbor is somebody pretty much like me, a Jewish person who believes the same thing I do and has the same values and tries to live those values. That's my neighbor. Um, perhaps Jesus doesn't really get this. In fact, actually, uh, the Jewish rabbis actually spent more time figuring out who their neighbor wasn't. So they could sort of keep a list of people that they weren't their neighbor, and so they didn't concern for them because they probably are cursed. And then Jesus tells the neighbor's story in verses 30 through 35. He begins in verse 30 about with a person in need, and uh, we, this is a, we know the story well. In reply, Jesus said, so here we go. The whole problem, let's tell a story. The man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A man. What man? We don't know. Now, pretty much, we, we can assume it's a Jewish man because he doesn't make any distinctions here, and, and he does make a distinction about the Samaritan. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You know, just imagine on the map up above me, if we had one, that Jerusalem is down in the south. Jericho is 17 miles to the east, okay? And it's going down. Remember, Jerusalem is uh, uh, Mount Zion is a high point geographically. And actually, there's a 3,000-foot descent over those 17 miles down to Jericho. Um, when he was attacked by robbers, that's not good. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him. Boy. They just um, wailed on this guy, and um, he's brutally beaten. He's left for dead, stripped, naked, and doesn't say, but probably took everything he had, probably had some money, maybe had a donkey himself, probably took that too. Uh, probably was a man of resources, or he wouldn't have been robbed. Um, Josephus says, uh, Josephus was a first century uh, Roman Jewish historian who lived from 37 AD to 100 AD, and he said this was a notorious location for robbery on this very road to Jericho. And we see the religious people in verses 31 and th to 32, a priest happened to be going down the same road, Jerusalem down to Jericho. Let's just be reminded of what a priest is. A priest is a man over 30 years old um, from the tribe of Levi. So he's a Levite, but he is a priest also. And a priest is a mediator between God and man. And the priest's job is to serve at the temple, whether sometimes it's behind the scenes, sometimes it's right on the spot. And one priest gets to go um, into the most holy place once a year. So these are religious people. These are people who know the law of the Old Testament. Their job is to mediate uh, between God and people and people and God. They're supposed to pray for people. They're supposed to teach about God from the scriptures. They're supposed to help people. Um, they didn't own property or land. Levites didn't own land. And their job was to serve God, primarily representing all the other tribes. This was the Israeli clergy. So 
priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. It sounds like he just crossed the road when he got there. He didn't want to get involved. Was he too busy? Maybe. Um, having Going to Jericho suggests he's been in Jerusalem, probably serving at the temple, and now his work is done, and now he's going back home. Um, why didn't he stop? We don't know the answer to the question, but um, maybe he didn't want to touch, uh, get blood on his hands. And that would be, make him ceremonially unclean. It would, uh, we'd have to go through some kind of ceremony to be clean again. Um, perhaps there's, this man is dead, and, and uh, then if, I touch, if he touches a corpse, then that, that would be, uh, make him unclean, and he just doesn't want to get uh, involved. So the priest chose not to help. Um, verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now the Levite is a, from the tribe of Levi, the 12 tribes in Israel. Le Levi and their job, as I mentioned, they couldn't own property and they were to serve at the temple. If Priests were selected from Levites. Not all Levites got to be priests. There had to be certain qualifications for a priest. But all the Levites supported the priesthood. Financially, they helped provide food for all of the priesthood. Uh, they, they helped provide all of the animals needed at the temple. Uh, they, pro they provided um, grain. They, provided, they were farmers. They, they raised cattle. They raised sheep. And um, so they did everything, and they were, they were located throughout all of Israel in different cities, and they supported the temple. These guys are religious guys. They, too, teach the Bible. But for some reason... Perhaps some of the same. He decides he's not going to help. Too important. And he passes on the other side. Then we meet the social outcast, verses 33 through 35. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So this is going to be kind of a surprise in the story. Because, you know, if you were in the audience and you're thinking, okay, we got the priest, yeah, the religious guy, we know those type. And we got a Levite, we understand what a Levite is. Now we're just going to have the average Joe come by, the average Jewish man. He's going to come by, and he's going to do the right thing. No, it's a Samaritan. That doesn't fit. That's a shocker. And uh, just by way of reminder, remember the Jews and the Samaritans hate, hated each other. It had been going on for 800 years. Um, for some of the reason, the, the, the Samaritans had been... Um, some of them had been misplaced by the Assyrians, you know, by no choice of their own. An enemy had come in and brought in other people and sort of wanted them to intermarry. And so out of that, this Samaritan group uh, became uh, racially mixed, intermixed. They established kind of their own religion, and they were definitely viewed as heretics and outsiders by the Jewish people. They were hated, and the Samaritans didn't have any love for the Jewish people either. But this guy, here he is, a Samaritan. He's on the road from Jerusalem, probably been there to do business. Now he's going to uh, Jericho. And he has pity. And 
we see that then he put this man on his own donkey. So think about this. He, um, he stops. He has pity on this man. And it says that um, he bandaged his wounds. Probably had to use his own clothing to make bandages. Um, he poured uh, olive oil on the wounds. That was a soothing way to help uh, with pain. And he, and, they, and he poured wine on the wounds, and that was sort of like the antiseptic of the day. And th- these are his own resources. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the Holiday Inn. They took care of him. The next day, he took out two uh, denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He says, look, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses. So this guy not only serves, but he makes a provision for the welfare of this injured man. And uh, when he put out the two denarius, uh, some scholars say that could have covered two months at the end. Others say less, two weeks, days. The idea is he was very generous. And he said, okay, when I come back, we don't know when he's coming back, but I will pay you more. There's even a sense that there's trust here between the innkeeper and this Samaritan, uh, probably a Samaritan businessman. Um, Verses 36 and 37, we see the answer. Which of these three, Jesus asked this expert in the law, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? So Jesus answers this man's question with a question. Who is my neighbor? Well, which, which three do you think? Which of the three? The expert in the law replied, uh, the Samaritan? No, he couldn't say it. He couldn't say those words. The one who had mercy on him. He gets it. That's what a neighbor is. That's what a good neighbor is. Um, So this law expert had tested Jesus with two questions. Jesus came back with two questions, and the law expert answered both of his questions both times. So if you ask Jesus a question, he might ask you one back. So who is your neighbor? Who has God put in your path that needs your help? Who will God put in your path today or this week? Now, we know that you can't help every person in the world. So easy to get overwhelmed, overwhelmed with all the information and all the needs we become aware of. But we can help someone. And we don't have all the resources in the world. We may have more resources than the Good Samaritan. Who knows? But we can help with our limited resources. Who has God brought into your world that needs your help? Um, I remember uh, speaking on this. I think it was the very first time as a senior pastor years ago, probably in the 80s, and um, so I, you know, told the congregation to be good Samaritans, and um, as soon as the service was over, 
there's a guy in our, that was attending our church named Gary, and he just made a beeline to me, and he said, I need $20. I need $20. And I knew I only had a $20 bill, bill in my pocket, in my billfold. And I never carried money, but I had a $20 bill. And he just right off the bat, you know, it's like God sent him to see how this works, you know. And uh, I gave him the big $20 bill. But um, God just may put somebody in your path, even today, that su would surprise you. In the last section, verses 38 through 42, the problem of misjudging others. If you don't like misjudging, just uh, cross out the MIS and put the problem of judging others. In the first section, we see discrimination. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Um, the situation here in verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Now, we don't know the timing of the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke doesn't always put his events in a chronological order. That's how we like things. We want everything on a timeline. That wasn't Luke's purpose. And we don't know exactly when this took place either. Uh, we do know that it's, uh, and Jesus had been moving toward Jerusalem, that he had started his turn toward Jerusalem. And uh, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, there is a village east of Jerusalem about two miles called Bethany. That's where probably Martha lived. And, Mar and we think that because Martha has a sister in this story, and Mary and Martha were sisters in Bethany, and they had a brother named Lazarus. But that's later on, and it'll be in John chapter 11. But th so this takes place earlier. And Jesus goes to Martha's house, and Martha was receptive to Jesus. And probably she had heard Jesus before and was very receptive to his teaching, and uh, what he had to say about the kingdom of God and identify that Jesus is special, whether she fully understood yet that he was the Messiah. We don't know that yet. Uh, we're going to see it clearly later in John 11. She gets it. Um, the problem in verses 39 through 40, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Is that a problem? Is she just lazy, sitting, you know? The term uh, sitting at the Lord's feet in the first century, discipleship was about sitting at the feet of a rabbi. You followed him, and then at times you sat down, and he taught, and you listened, and you stayed the course and you were receptive to the rabbi's teaching because you were a follower. That's the position that Mary has taken to sit at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus gets this. This is an amazing thing. You know why? Because women didn't sit at the feet of rabbis. Only men. And Mary wants to sit at the feet of Jesus and be discipled by him. Now, as I said, there's a problem. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. 
Now, let's, you know, think about Martha for a minute. She's got a good heart. She wants to serve Jesus. Jesus is coming to her house, and she wants to do the best. Guess what? It's Jesus and 12 others. She's got to make a meal. This is a big deal. She's got to prepare the meat. She's got to prepare the vegetables. Um, she's got to set the table. Now, what all, what all you have to do to make a meal? She's got to make all these preparations. It's a large group. She's got family in the group, too. And here she is. She's got all this work. And this is starting to make her unhappy with her situation. She came to Jesus. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me? You see, Mary had been helping. Mary was helping prepare the meal. Don't you care that she left me to do to the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So Martha scolds Jesus. And she's very disappointed with her situation. And she's just, all, all this work has to be done. Who's going to do the work? I have to do the work. Nobody wants to help me. This, she needs justice. That's why she scolds Jesus. And uh, don't you care? Don't you care about me? Um, do something, Lord. Make her help me. And, um, you know, we can be pretty sympathetic with Martha because this is a big deal. She's got a good heart. But what happens? She's, she loses her focus. And it's all about what she has to do and all the things that other people aren't doing. And she begins to evaluate other people like her sister. And she wants her sister to be like her. And she is a doer. Martha is a doer, and she just gets busy and busy. Do something, Lord. Pity me. I have all these things to do and all these things to worry about. And then we get the divine perspective from Jesus in verses 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. Martha, you are distracted your heart is getting distracted by busyness. Serving is good, but serving has made you upset. Something is wrong with that picture when our serving makes us unhappy. When our serving makes us unhappy with other people, something's wrong with that picture. Serving has brought her worries and anxiety. Serving has has made her lash out at her sister Mary. Has Martha, Martha missed something? Verse 42, But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Martha, serving is good, but that's not all that there is. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chose something better than helping Martha. They were serving together. Mary has now chosen something more. Mary has chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus. 
Mary has chosen discipleship. Mary had helped Martha, but now she is choosing to spend time with Jesus, her Lord. She wants to hear Jesus. She wants to hear what he has to teach her. She wants to continue to get to know him in a more personal way. She wants to follow, and she wants to take time with Jesus as well as serving him. So, let's, four lessons. First lesson. The essence of following Christ is to love God and love other people. The essence of following God is to, following Christ is to love God and to love other people. This is not the way of salvation. It is the way of discipleship. Come to faith in Christ, and then we follow Christ. Jesus said these are the greatest commands in all the Bible. And all of God's commands can be summed up in these two. It's about our relationship with God, and it's about our relationship with others. All the commands, even in the New Testament. Loving God is personal. It's about a relationship, and this loving God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our strengths and all of our minds That's total commitment. I'm all in on this. Jesus is Lord. I'm all in. That's about loving God. Loving people kind of shows our growth, kind of shows where, we're, where we are in the process. It, too, is personal. But it kind of brings out those character qualities that we have. Are we patient? Are we kind? Are we gentle? Are we peaceful? How do we deal with anxiety? How do we deal with anger? You know, when you and I stand before God one day, this is what's going to matter. How do we love God? How do we love people? Second lesson, loving your neighbors breaks down social, cultural, and racial barriers. When you think about it, the story of the Good Samaritan has far-reaching effects. It breaks down social barriers. Where you are on the social pecking order makes zero difference. There aren't important people and less important people and nobodies. All people are created in the image of God and loved by him. It breaks down cultural barriers and religious barriers. doesn't make any difference what somebody's religion is. It doesn't make any difference if they follow some kind of Christianity or some other far-out religion or whether they are atheists or they have no religion. It doesn't make any difference. They are neighbors. Now, sh sure, there are... Um, I'll hold off on that comment. It's just a reminder, God loves all people. And he uses us to express his love to other people. Loving your neighbor breaks down racial barriers. Loving uh, your neighbor brings down um, gender identification barriers. 
Because all of these people are neighbors. It's not like some people deserve our attention and some people don't. If God puts them in our path with a need, it doesn't mean we have to preach the gospel from a soapbox. It just means we need to love them and serve them. Whatever it might be, it might be something really simple. You may not have to pay two months' rent for them. Thirdly, third lesson, loving your neighbor provides practical and sometimes costly help. And this is evidenced by how the Good Samaritan provided for the medical expenses of the uh, man that was injured, and then he put him up for a period of time in the hotel. He probably was a man of significant resources. We don't know. It was just a story that Jesus used. We have limited resources. You know what? That's okay. We can't do all things for everybody, but we can do some things for some people. What will God want you and I to do to show love to our neighbors? Jesus Christ was the epitome of the Good Samaritan who has compassion on people and who loves people and who has served people. He still does today through his people. But ultimately, he gave his life to pay for all people's sins and to make a way for them. And he is the epitome. He is an example for us. And we are to be like Jesus. Lastly, doing good things for God sometimes crowds out the best. Doing good things for God sometimes crowds out the best. Uh, Martha was doing good. She was serving Jesus. That's very practical, preparing a meal for Jesus. Servant's heart, servant's attitude, up to a point. But Martha was running on empty. Her spiritual tank was running low. She uh, had reached her wit's end. That's not good, is it, people? Mary uh, saw this opportunity to sit at the Lord's feet and to learn from him. You know what? We all need that. It's so easy just to get busy. So easy for me just to look at things on my schedule. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. This is important. This is important. I've got to do this. And nobody knows whether I had a quiet time today. You know, I just, I, I do these things. Look like a follower of Christ on the outside. Talk like a follower of Christ. Now, it'll catch up with you. Other people will see it too. But um, we need time, time, real time, to slow down, to focus on what Jesus would say to us, to focus on hearing his word, to focus on reading his word, to quietly reflect what God is doing in our lives, to think about how he is leading us, to talk with him about our lives in prayer, to bring our lives, what are, what's going on, to bring them before him. 
to bring the people in our lives before him, to ask for his help, to ask for his strength, um, to ask for provision for our daily needs, to express love, appreciation, thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done. Time to intercede for our families, for our friends, for hurting people. Sometimes we just call this a quiet time. Whatever you want to call it, we all need it. Not giving out any rules, but you and I need time to slow down and be with God, and you get to decide. Nobody has to tell you what's required or how to go. I mean, I read, I said it's time, time to read, read the Bible. I try to read through the Bible in a year. Apart from any sermon study or other study I'm doing, that's just how I like to do it. I like to continue to get the big picture. And so I go through and God speaks and, I, and he'll focus on things that I hadn't thought about for a long time or maybe, gee, I didn't see it this way before. And I need to spend time with, in prayer. Sometimes it's going through a prayer list. Sometimes it's going through uh, the regular attenders list at the bridge. Sometimes it's just leaning back and reflecting but, uh, and, and just talking to God in my chair or wherever I am and, um, or riding in the car. But I do need time. And it's not just always asking, 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 asking. Time to think, time to reflect, time to give praise. And busyness and self-importance always crowd out this time. What do you need to do if you're not already spending time with God on a regular basis? You get to decide regular. What do you need to do to make time or a little more time for your relationship with God? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we're grateful for uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, and we're reminded that uh, sometimes we can discriminate. Sometimes we can make some people really important and other people not valuable. Father, I pray that you will just open our eyes to recognize your leadership and to recognize when we come across a neighbor in need. Give us eyes to see that. Give us a heart to want to help. Whether it's very small or whether it requires time and maybe even financial resources. And also, God, as we uh, just think about the Mary and Martha story, and it's, we, we uh, can identify it's just so easy to be involved in busy lives, taking care of our families and our work, um, being involved in the, at the bridge, all those things uh, take time. And, and we're, we live in a busy time in a busy world. And God, um, show us how we can just continue to grow and be more like Mary, willing to sit and to learn from you and to be in relationship with you, to talk with you, 
to ask for guidance, to have you show us what things um, are displeasing to you, what things bring you joy. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm a child of God, and I believe that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe Jesus is Lord, our job is to follow him. He's the leader. We follow the leader. He said, uh, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And he said to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, by the way, it's okay to love yourself. There's an appropriate self-love self-care. You need rest. You have limited resources. You need to manage your resources. Um, You need to be concerned about your health. God doesn't want you to, you know, sacrifice until you're, there's nothing left to give. God wants you to bring your best self. And that's, that's what that self-love is. That's, there is an appropriate self-love. But, There's that balance. Love God. Love others. So let's go and do that. God bless you. And who will God bring into your life as a neighbor this week? We're dismissed. Thanks.